This episode of Brown Girl White Coat is sponsored by Pixarize. I'm so excited to be working with Pixarize guys because I adore them. I adore anything that helps me remember things more efficiently, more clearly, and for the long term. So you guys know I've talked about not being a science major. I was a social major in college so many times, and I had to reach out and find ways like this, non-traditional ways to learn. And so that's exactly what Pixarize does. They provide amazing visual memory hooks for things like biochem, psych, and learning the structure and functions of mechanoreceptors, you name it. So I wanted to bring this tool to all of your pre-meds right now that are studying for your MCAT. And so I partnered with Pixarize to bring you guys a free subscription to their MCAT platform by using the link in the show notes or also linked in my personal Instagram at Cyber. So hopefully by watching these videos, you guys are gonna solidify these key concepts that are tested on the MCAT and then actually remember them when the test comes around. And while I have you guys here, I will preview this week's episode. It is a little sit-down interview with Adam Goodkoff from at See the Medlife. Everything he's doing over there on his YouTube channel, which will be linked in the show notes, is just amazing. He's partnered up with a nurse, a dentist, people from all walks of the healthcare life, and he's being very educational and giving these instructional videos, lots of vlogs on his YouTube channel. So I will make sure to go ahead and link that and check out all of his stuff, as well as his Instagram, which will also be linked. And we talked about everything to do with clerkship. So I wanted to give clinical students, um, who I'm about to be in just a few months, really good advice for how to do well on rounds and do well in the wards and find your place in the hospital because this is a new experience for all of us. So I'm so excited to talk about emergency medicine, geek out a little bit, and he's just such a great person. I'm so happy to have had Adam on. And before I let you guys get into this episode, make sure you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and give us a follow on Spotify. This week's Apple Podcast reviewer is The Medic Gal. So her I'm assuming she's a gal. Um, Her title is really informative. And she says, so I just discovered this podcast and I love it. So much useful information and very down to earth. I'm a pre-med and listening to this is just very motivating. So thank you so much to the medic gal for your review. And let's just get into this episode. All right. Hey guys, today I'm sitting down with Adam from at See the Med Life and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate you for having me on. Of course. So Adam's a YouTuber. He runs a super informative Instagram as well, which is how I found him. And debatably, most importantly, he's a fourth year med student applying to residencies in emergency medicine. So I'm excited to sit down with you today and create kind of a clerkship guide for med students that are entering clinics soon. Um, so I think we'll be able to provide some valuable feedback on that um, and provide answers you can't just Google. So I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. So let's get into our segments. So our first one is called setting the record straight. This is where I give you a few different statements and you tell me if they're true or false in your opinion. Ready? Okay. Sure. Okay. So the first one, creating content as a medical student is more work than you would think. Oh yes, for sure. (laughs) It's so (laughs) much work. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, this whole thing kind of spiraled. Uh, it started I never thought it would get to the point that it is. Um, but I joke and call it my part-time full-time job now. So um, oh, obviously yeah. medical school is the, is the full-time job, but this is my part-time job that takes full-time hours. So, um, you know, I remember joking like, oh, it's, it's just someone posting a picture on Instagram. Like 
And maybe that is the case for those that are just using it like with their friends. But when you're kind of generating knowledge translation and real meaningful content for people, um, that takes time to come up with. It takes time to get the right pictures and respond to all the messages and things. So it's, it's a lot of work. Um, Love it. Yeah. As we'll find out in a couple of days here, uh, super excited kind of for what's coming. And there, that has taken a whole lot more work. Cool. Well, I'll be asking you a little bit more about that maybe later. Sure, sure. Um, okay, let's go on to number two. The coveted work-life balance all goes to, excuse my language here, but all goes to shit when you enter clinics. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I'm going to say false. I think you do have a work-life balance. Um, I think it's very important to set that for yourself. So you kind of decide how your life is going to look. I mean, some rotations, they own you. Um, like if you do a trauma surgery rotation, your life's going to suck. There's no way around that. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you have, let's say, internal medicine and you're working 12 hours a day, you know, you make the decision on whether you want to go to the gym or not. And maybe you can't go for an hour and a half anymore, but you can still go for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, get some kind of a workout in and feel good about yourself. Um, you can still meal prep on the weekends and have healthy food throughout the week. So I would say it's not entirely true and that you can definitely still have a work-life balance. Okay. That's good to hear. Cause I think, I think that's what everyone's kind of freaking out about when it comes to sure. clinics. So. Sure. All right. Number three, there's such a thing as love at first sight when it comes to picking a specialty. Ooh. Um, I think, yes. I think in real life, I don't believe in that. Um, I'm sure it works yeah. for some people, but, uh, uh, I think there is somewhat of a love at first sight. You're going to find a specialty where you think, you know, wow, this is so much fun. I'm really enjoying it. But I think the thing to keep in mind is that can happen in multiple specialties and that's okay. And you can also fall out of love and back in love with a certain specialty. Um, so you may do a rotation, let's say in emergency medicine and you might really like it. And then you are on internal medicine. You're doing a lot of consults and you see the way they're doing things in another ER and you really don't like it and you decide you don't want to be a part of that and it may come full circle at the end of the year that you kind of think back and say you know what I fit a lot better in the emergency department that I did um, on internal medicine coming down to admit patients so I think yes and no yeah to what extent do the people around you kind of help you make that decision like if you you know rotate with a really good team is that something that you know sways you one way or another it, it absolutely is and that's kind of one of the intangible facts about third year is that um, your education is variable based on who you work with. I mean, you may have your trauma surgery rotation with the most grouchy, disgruntled surgeon on planet earth, and you're going to hate surgery. You're never going to have a good time. Um, yeah. And the flip side of that coin is the student next month might be with a different attending who loves his job or her job and uh, loves what they do and loves being in the hospital every day. And that student's going to perceive surgery as a lot more fun and a lot less work. Um, and that goes for every specialty. Yeah. So it's okay to make your decision based on that or take that into consideration? Well, I think, I think you should try and come in with some pre-assigned goals. And I have a post coming at some point um, talking yeah. about how students can maybe try and focus in on what they might want to do. Um, but I think, that, um, I think that it's important to have goals set and you know, try and figure out, do I want to be in the surgical area? Do I want to be in the medical area? And then from there, figure out further, you know, what type of medicine do I want to do? What type of surgery do I want to do? And that will at least help get you focused in on those rotations. Because I'll let you know in a little secret, you can't be 110% on every rotation all the way through med school. 
Yeah. It's just a fact. I don't know if anyone will actually tell you that honestly, but like you can't stay on. It's like you notice that in the first two years, you're doing your classwork. Some classes, someone tells you this is going to be really, really hard. And so you, you gear up and you put in extra effort on that class. And that's not as hard as you worked on every other class throughout the year. So it kind of goes the same way for third year. If you know, let's say in my case, like I've always wanted to do emergency medicine. So coming into the emergency medicine rotation, I had cleared all of my calendars. There was nothing. I mean, I was ready to stay however late I had to stay, however many extra days I had to work, whatever it was, I wanted to be there. I wanted to soak it all up. Um, and on the flip side of that, for example, like pediatrics or psychiatry, I knew those weren't fields that I wanted to pursue for a residency. And so that doesn't mean that I went in with a bad attitude. I still learned a ton on those rotations, but I didn't necessarily clean off my whole schedule and say, you know, forget the weddings, forget the family events. I have, you know, this block of time because it's not sustainable. Like we said, the work-life balance. So I would say, you know, going in, try and pick a couple areas that you think you might be really interested in and then just keep an open mind on the rest of the rotations. Yeah, that's great advice. I like that. I needed to hear that personally as well. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into our next segment, and then we're going to get more into talking about EM and, and all of the rest of it. Um, so good. I do another segment where we talk about our favorites. This can be as of lately. It can be you know, anything from a recipe you've been cooking to a product that you've been really loving. So since you're my guest, I'll let you go first. All right, fair. Um, wow. Favorites. It's funny. I, I had one in mind cause I was just going to say eggs cause I eat e- eggs every day for breakfast. Like, I love eggs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No matter the, uh, no matter the time crunch that I have, I always make my eggs in the morning. Um, I just feel like it gets me off on the right foot. I'm not too hungry, but yeah. Favorite product would have to probably be, um, Oh, what is it called? They're uh, quest nutrition made like protein chips. Oh. Um, oh. and they're pretty close to real chips, but they're like 18 or 20 grams of protein in this small little bag. So it's kind of like a healthy snack, like mixes up just eating power bars all day. So I've uh, been enjoying those. Oh, cool. I'm going to have to try those. I do like the quest yeah. protein bars. Those are pretty good. Yeah. So, so if you like those, you might, might like the chips. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So I will mention one small thing as well that it's also related to cooking and eating because that's a large part of my life. Sure. And um, so if you haven't tried it, it's chipotle chili pepper. It's the best spice ever made. Okay. Um, and it makes everything generic or that's a, a specific brand I need to look for? I get mine from Kroger. It's like McCormick or something. Okay. But there, okay. there's a reason why it's like four fifty, and all the other spices are like a dollar. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll have to give that a look. I, I do I love spicy. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm a yeah, big hot sauce person. I have, I have like four or five different hot sauces. So I just mix nice. it up every morning. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Definitely try that. And then, yeah, I put it into all of my instant pot recipes too. So that's oh, nice. a great yep. idea. Yeah. Instant um, pots are key. <laughs> all right. We're going to get into the meat of this podcast now. Um, so before we get all into it, um, can you give us an introduction on who you are and where you go to med school, where you did undergrad, all of that stuff? Sure. So um, I'll modify it because the one thing that I don't share across all of social media is med school. So I'll give you the heads up on that. Okay. But my name is Adam okay. Goodkoff, um, and I, uh, I go to medical school at an undisclosed location mm-hmm. on the East Coast. Uh, I'm a fourth year, actually a fifth year because I did a teaching and research fellowship. So that added a year on. I'll be applying or I am applying emergency medicine right now, interviewing. I actually leave again tomorrow for an interview. So very Exciting. busy time of year. And uh, let's see, refresh me. What were the other things you'd like in the... Uh... <laughs> Where did you go to undergrad? Do you say that? Oh, or... sure. I did not. Yeah. So I, I did undergrad at the University of Albany. Cool, cool. And what got you interested in emergency medicine? Did you come into med school with that interest or did it develop over time? 
Yeah, so I came into med school pretty set on emergency medicine. Um, I was involved in EMS for like five years. Um, Mm -hmm. So from high school straight through college and then into med school, um, I kind of knew I liked that. The only rotation that really seriously like caught my attention was anesthesia. Um, Mm -hmm. And I got to do a lot of procedures there. And so that I'm a very procedure happy guy. I love to do procedures. And so that really caught my attention. But uh, I had a really great EM rotation after that. And ultimately, I decided that's where I wanted to stay and um, do emergency medicine. I I think EM offers a very unique area or skill set in medicine. You get to not only help a population that's often forgotten or not helped, but uh, you also get to work in that really critical window also. So you kind of get like the best and most rewarding elements of primary care, in my opinion. And you also get the most serious kind of ICU critical care level. And you get to combine those and you never know what's going to come through the door. It's very like cliche, but you know, you'll, you'll read a triage complaint from the triage nurses and they do the best that they can, but oftentimes it's, it's nowhere near what's going on. And so it's really your job to figure out what is going on with the patient and how to best manage them. Yeah. And what I've heard about, you know, picking a specialty is you've got to first decide if you want to do adults or children, where do you feel the most, you know, compelled? And if you can't decide, maybe EM is for you because you really get to, you know, experience all of the the different age groups and procedures as well. So, yeah, I think that's one way to look at it. I think also, you know, something to remember is family medicine definitely gets to see both of those as well. Um, I think one of the big draws in emergency medicine is that the way that we think is very different than the way that the rest of medicine thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's to say that, uh, you know, the rest of medicine is there to make a diagnosis. You come into the office, you get a diagnosis and you leave with a treatment or a plan. In emergency medicine, our goal is to see you and make sure that you don't have something that's going to kill you. And if we've Mm -hmm. done that, we've done our jobs. And so a lot of what I think I do with patients is setting expectations. So someone would come in a 22 year old female with chest pain. They're not having an MI, but they think they're having an MI. So we'll talk and I'll explain that I'm going to rule out fatal arrhythmias. I'm going to rule out ischemia. I'm going to rule out the things that could kill them. But if they don't have any of those things that we're worried about, they can go home and they can follow up with their primary care doctor. And I think um, that's a very different way of thinking compared to if you were to see that same patient in an internal medicine or family medicine clinic, you'd, you'd approach it totally differently. Yeah, definitely. Ah, that's exciting. Um, so what is the best part about being a clinical student now? And what's the best part about that transition from, you know, books to bedside? Sure. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I think I enjoyed all of medical school. I don't know if I'm an outlier with that, but um, mm-hmm. I thought the first two years were very rewarding and it's a very special time where you get to just learn uninterrupted. Nobody's telling you to go to work. You don't have any other obligations. And I think the harder you work there, the more fun you have in your third and fourth year. And I say that because I think if you maybe didn't work that hard in the first two years, third year is probably not that much fun. It's probably really hard because you feel like there's gaps. You don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you might feel a little bit more lost, but I think if you put the work in, like most students, third year is a blast. Um, you're finally getting to take all that knowledge out of the textbook and literally see it right in front of you. And you know, the first couple times you see a diabetic, you see someone in DKA, you see someone having a heart attack. I mean, those things will stay with you. Um, because you'll remember reading about it in pathoma or first aid, and you're going to know exactly what they're talking about, and you're seeing the real patient. And there's that transition of mindset of, I know what this is, to what do I need to do for this patient to get them feeling better? What do I need to do to make the diagnosis? And that's a really cool transition to see happen. Yeah, definitely. So what, is the, what are the downsides that you see in terms of, I guess, I guess one of them you kind of mentioned, you, you are 
you know, on someone else's time. You don't have as much sure. of your own time to spend, but what else can, can you possibly mention? So downsides about third year? Yeah. Or just starting um, clinics. Starting clinical, sure. You know, I think it's a very different style of learning. I think in the first two years, it's clear what's expected of you. You're given um, objectives at the beginning of every lecture. You have a pretty good idea what's going to be on your exams. When you get to clinicals, every physician has a different expectation. And although there might be objectives for, say, an emergency medicine rotation, every physician is going to hold you to a different standard. And some you know, may want you to take on the role of essentially shadowing. Uh, some may want you to be hands-on and, you know, doing, putting in IVs, hooking patients up to the EKG. You know, everyone's kind of got a different expectation. So you have to be very, very flexible as a rotating medical student because you're basically there to, to fit into the, the puzzle that you're joining. Um, every office, every hospital floor, every, you know, different area you go has its own preset mechanisms that are already going. And it's your job to try and seamlessly fit in there and be helpful rather than a pain in everyone's side. Right, exactly. And for EM, what would you say that that those kind of qualities are? Where do you fit into the puzzle when you're on an EM rotation? So I think, you know, we'll talk as, as a sub-eye because um, a lot of medical schools don't have third years rotating in the ER. If oh, you are okay. a third year, just soak it up, you know, learn as much as you can, be helpful. If you see someone charting, don't ask questions while they're, <laughs> you know, documenting. Um, but I think, you know, as a fourth, fourth year or kind of a later third year trying to be that more helpful medical student, you know, the big thing is to just kind of anticipate what will be needed. So if, you know, if you're working with a resident and they're going to put in a central line, you know, it would be reasonable to ask them what size gloves they are and go get a set of sterile gloves ready. Um, you can get the kit ready. I mean, you're not above doing those things. And the more you do that, the more they're going to say, this student clearly knows what needs to be done and I'm willing to let them have a shot. And the same thing, you know, if a, if a patient comes in or you see a patient wheel by and, and you're working with a resident who's finishing up a chart and the EMS is bringing in a patient, you know, you can hop up from the desk and go help EMS transfer that patient over. And that way, you know, maybe the resident comes in a couple seconds late and you'll catch the beginning of the story from the paramedic and you'll be able to fill them in on that. So I think kind of being the, the eyes and the ears and the extra set of hands is kind of the best thing you can do as a med student. And then, of course, being a sub-eye is a little different. Uh, a lot of institutions, you're really expected to function as an intern. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of a whole different discussion. I don't know if you want to get into that now or another time. I do want to get into that. I, that is on my, on my little list of things I want to talk about today, but let's get into it in just a few minutes. Sure thing. Um, let's talk more about maybe before a rotation. What kinds of things are you, are you reading up on what's to come? Are you preparing in any sort of way? I know on your, on your Instagram, you mentioned, you know, here's how you suture. You're teaching like pretty transferable skills there. Um, sure. So what do I need to know before going into say an EM rotation or maybe family med or something like that? So I think there, every rotation has its unique, um, knowledge set. And that's why it's so important that we get to do all the rotations. Um, I think that, you know, the case files books are a great starting mm -hmm. point. Um, they're going to give you kind of the, I guess, you know, 10,000 foot look at what's included in the specialty and what are the basic things I should know. And then what I would do from there, and you're not gonna be able to read all of that before rotation, but you can kind of skim the chapter, the, the contents of the book. And maybe you'll notice, you know, there's a lot of talk about insulin dosage. Um, that's not something we learn a lot in medical school. So maybe you want to spend some time reading up on the different types of insulin. Um, you know, how do we calculate the dosage for someone that's in the hospital? How do we determine, you know, how to break up their insulin from home and give it to them in the hospital? 
Um, so that might be something really useful for internal medicine or, you know, for emergency medicine, for example, I would really familiarize yourself with the lethal diagnoses. I think that's the hardest thing that I see for medical students and even struggled with myself in the past was, you know, like I said, I, I pick on the 22 year old female with chest pain, but it's an easy one to, to look at because everyone says that's not a heart attack. And that's, that's easy to say. It's not a heart attack. But what else could it be? And what else can't you miss? Do they have pericarditis? Do they have myocarditis? Do they have a pneumo? Um, you know, those are the things that you can't afford to miss. And uh, you need to have those on your differential. And they're not things that, you know, necessarily pop to the front of your mind. So it can be good to, there's a million apps and books and things that you can kind of refresh on some of the, you know, top five diagnoses that you should have for each type of chief complaint. Yeah. Totally. That's great advice. So before going into a rotation like EM, um, what do they expect you to know? So am I supposed to know how to do small procedures? Is that something I learn on the job? Or is that something I should go to workshops that are held at my school um, and kind of learn before I get there? What's the consensus about that? So I, I'm biased. I think it's probably different. It's different at programs, different regionally, I'm sure. Yeah. I've always, like I said, been very, I love doing procedures. I love learning that kind of stuff. So I've always kind of sought those opportunities out in the simulation labs and things like that. So coming to a rotation, you know, and they say, are you comfortable putting a central line to be able to say, yes, I've done X number, or even if you haven't done any, yes, I've done two on a simulator. I know the steps. That's a mm -hmm. big deal. Um, and I think it's up to you if you want to be that person that gets a lot of procedures and gets to be a lot of hands-on. Um, it's up to you to seek those opportunities out in your medical school, go to those after-hours labs and, um, you know, the, the optional activities. Because I think medical school will put you out of second year at a base level. Everyone's different. But, you know, you probably should know basics of suturing, um, how to mm -hmm. throw a simple interrupted stitch. Um, you know, you should know some of the basics of wound care and splinting and casting, those kind of things, just to be familiar, but nobody's expecting you to come out and be a practicing clinician. So if you're, you know, say you're a third year on emergency medicine, um, nobody's going to send you in the room and say, go close that up. We'll see you in 20 minutes. It's not going right. to happen. You know, like I said, we'll come to it. But if you're a sub eye, that's expected. I mean, you should be able to go in the room, clean, anesthetize, close and dress, a, you know, a laceration without having any assistance. And Everyone's at different points um, and, you know, you may need instruction the first time and there's never any shame in asking for help. You can say, I've never had the opportunity to do this. I'd really like to try. Do you mind helping me out? And that's even, you know, that's fine as a, as a sub-I as well. But I think that, you know, over time you are expected to be able to do basic procedures like that. Um, so everyone comes in at a different point. I don't know if that really answers it. And uh, I think yeah. kind of the, the more you can elevate the point that you're coming in at, the more you're setting yourself up for success. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm going to need to learn how to suture ASAP. <laughs> check, check back on that post. It's got some good, uh, good tips in there. And, Definitely. Yeah. Um, so what kind of thinking process do you go through when you're trying to decide if a specialty is for you? So you're on a rotation maybe, and you're trying to figure out, you know, can I see myself fitting into this lifestyle? What are some questions that clinical students should be asking themselves when they're on a rotation? So I think that the first question you should ask yourself is, do you like what you're doing? Which mm -hmm. sounds really silly, but yeah. it's very easy to get caught up in being good at something and forget that you should enjoy it also. Um, so you can have really good hands and be really good in the OR, but not mm -hmm. actually enjoy being in the OR that much. And that is actually pretty common. The same thing, you know, IR is very hands-on. You may be very good. They might say, wow, we've never seen a student with hands like that. 
And that, mm-hmm. that's like intoxicating when an attending tells you that. But you have to be careful and say, am I personally satisfied or fulfilled by what I'm doing in this specialty? And there's, there's no wrong or right answer. That's just something to consider. So I think that's number one. Um, and that ties into number two, which is, you know, the life question, do I need to cut or can I live without it? Because surgery versus medicine is, is a huge dividing line. Uh, you know, they're both physicians, obviously, but once you get into residency, what you do as a surgeon is definitely different than what you would do as an internal medicine physician. And, and nobody else is really going in the OR. Now, there are multiple routes to get in the OR. There's opto, there's ENT and things like that. But I think you need to decide, do you like to be doing surgeries or you know, do you prefer procedures or even less, just you know, more of like cerebral medicine? That's important to figure out. And then I think the other thing that a lot of people kind of dance around and won't really say is figure out your patient population that you like to work with. Not everyone likes to work with a patient population that is uninsured, that is angry, that is drunk, aka oftentimes the yeah. ER. Yeah. Um, and there's no shame in that. That's that's perfectly fine. Um, some people like the patients a little bit more tame. Some people like the patients sleeping and don't want to talk to them, hence anesthesia or never see them or rarely see them for radiology. You know, and, and I'm picking on stereotypes here. None of these things are absolutes, but uh, you know, I think you should find that balance for you. Um, and how much time you like to spend with your patients and what population you want to work with. Yeah, I really like that. So I do want to get to talking about work-life balance because I do think that your Instagram portrays that very accurately. Like you, you really look like you have it all figured out, which I'm sure, you know, we're all on our own journeys, but, um, Absolutely. but I really want to ask you about this because they've kind of had us scared. We have this thing called transitions um, mm. where we kind of learn how to scrub in, how to, um, do other clinical skills that we're going to need soon. And they had this like question and answer session and we got to ask anonymously anything that we were scared about. And someone had said, will I have time to be a real human? <laughs> and um, administration kind of responded and they were like, well, of course you'll have time to be a real human. You'll have time to shower. <laughs> and so we're all. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, 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 this is like part of why I'm really passionate about the Instagram and kind of fighting that imagery. I think a lot of uh, administrations and medical schools and older physicians um, trained in a different time and medicine's different. Medicine is always evolving and the generations that are practicing medicine change what they demand and what they require. And we see that in the work balance hours um, that the residencies have changed to. We see that in what people are requesting for schedules after they graduate and the amount of time they're willing to work and take call and things like that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I I think, I hope that my Instagram portrays, uh, you know, a work-life balance. I try to be as real on it as I can. And I do feel like I have a very good balance. I don't have everything in this life figured out by any means, (laughs) but I think kind of living as a medical student is, is one of the things that, I sort of have down as a, as a balance and I think you need to prioritize what's important to you. Like I said, you may not be able to do everything. You won't be able to do the gym for an hour and a half and go to the movies and go to the bar and do all that stuff. But, you know, I think if you pick and choose and set your time up, there are going to be hard rotations. There'll be easier rotations and um, you have to plan accordingly, but it's certainly possible to have a life. I really, really don't like the notion that, you know, doing something takes away your life. And even I'll pick on surgery from time to time because they certainly have crazy work hours, but I know tons of surgeons that still have time to go out to the bar with their friend and grab a beer or go to dinner with their girlfriend, whatever it is. So, you know, I I don't really buy into that. I think, uh, like I said, you make time. Yeah. 
So one thing I'm wondering personally is how bad does it get? You're talking about surgery. Like what does your schedule look like when you're on one of those really hard rotations? So every rotation is different. And I think I'm okay talking about this because there's not actually any rules. I don't think that govern what medical students can do. Um, I may be wrong on that. I'm not hundred percent sure, but you can definitely work a lot of hours and it's, you know, it's rotation dependent, preceptor dependent, but um, let's take a specialty that takes call, for example. So mm-hmm. let's put ourselves on OB. We would get mm-hmm. into the hospital at 6.45 in the morning to go see the pre-op patients for surgery that day. Um, we would do surgery until 11 o'clock. Then we would get out. We'd go around on the floor, um, hopefully get lunch in between, but uh, you know, finish rounding and putting in orders and whatever you need, maybe by you know, 3 or 4 o'clock. And then those that aren't on call could probably go home. Um, if you're on call, you're going to be there. And, you know, if you're OB, you're covering labor and delivery. So you're, you know, doing checks, um, determining how, you know, dilated the pregnant patients are and how soon they're going to deliver. You may need to do deliveries, C-sections, there may be emergency surgeries, there could be no ovarian torsion in the ER. So you may have a night where, you know, you get to sleep for a couple hours, and it's not a problem. You may have a night where you're up the entire night. And so you could be up from 645 until sign out the next morning at 7am. Um, and you know, you'll get a post call day. You should be getting a post call day. Um, but then you'll be back in to do it again. And that post call day may count as your day off. Um, so on rotations like that, it can get difficult scheduling and things like laundry and grocery shopping, the basic (laughs) things. Um, but, but the, the key to remember is it's all temporary. And that's kind of always what I told myself on a harder rotation is that, you know, anyone can do anything for a short period of time. And, you know, if I'm sure those that are really passionate about the specialty that, you know, has that kind of a schedule, uh, they don't mind doing it. They love being there. They love being in the hospital. And to them, that sacrifice is worth it. And if, if that's not you, like that was never me, Mm -hmm. um, that's okay. Just put your head down, perform as well as you can learn as much as you can and then move on. And so I think it's just, it's important to remember everything is temporary and uh, a lot of people have gotten through it before you. So, you know, you'll get through it too. Yeah. Definitely. So I guess residency is also going to be grueling after, you know, rotations. Um, To what extent, and I've heard this a lot about EM in particular, but to what extent is residency a good indication of what lifestyle afterwards will be like? And for what specialties is that maybe less true than others? Yeah, so I'm speculating a little bit on this because obviously I haven't started residency yet. But from rotating around at a lot of EM programs, I can at least tell you that Um, your life after residency, nothing ever gets easier. Attendings will always say it doesn't get any easier. Um, but I think the hours do reduce. So in residency for emergency medicine, you can actually only do 65 hours a week. Um, and that's just a function of structure and the fact that we have, you know, rotating schedules, overnights, things like that, didactics. Um, but 65 hours in a week is a lot. It's a lot, a lot. And, you know, to do that continuously is very tiring. And, you know, for other specialties, the cap is higher than that. I want to say it's like 80 hours. And, you know, that's a double regular work week. So to do that day in and day out for five years is hard. And I think from talking to, you know, recently graduated surgeons, um, they say that it's it's getting better that they're able to kind of set their lifestyle a bit more. So they're not working 80 hours a week, but I think it's kind of unavoidable. If you go into a specialty that takes call, 
you're going to have to take call. Nothing's going to magically change there. Yeah. Um, you know, and so if that's something that always bothers you, for example, you're at the hospital all day and you come home and someone calls you to come back in, which obviously at most academic centers, you would stay there. But if you're at a smaller hospital, you say, go home, you have to come back in. If that bothers you, that might not be the specialty for you because that's going to mm-hmm. be how it is for the rest of the time. Um, I remember some students in my medical school would say like, well, I only have to do that for the first 10 years, then I'll be senior and I won't have to take call. And that's going away that, I mean, it exists in places, but I wouldn't pick a specialty based on thinking that you only have to survive for a short amount of time. Um, Medicine can be very stressful. And, you know, I think that residency is kind of a look into what that's like, but um, I would say the the work hours go down, but the the stress level probably goes up as you're an attending. But uh, again, yeah, there's more writing on your shoulders too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I I do talk about burnout a lot on this podcast because I think, you know, people experience it in various um, stages of their life and in various um, degrees. Hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far. Just wanted to pop in and tell you a bit about Pixarize's Step 1 platform as well. So while studying for my genetics exam that's this Friday, I really should be studying right now, um, I came across Pixarize's Step 1 videos that have these amazing visual memory hooks for things like chromosome abnormalities, Lynch syndrome, Lee from any. And I watched these, I supplemented them with the Anki cards, and these concepts have stuck with me long term honestly guys. So if you guys also want to have this awesome tool to supplement your step one studying, you can enter the code SAI, S-A-I-E, at checkout for 10% off any of their step one packages. This is an awesome deal that'll only be running for a week from this episode, so definitely jump on it. You can also check out their free videos on their YouTube to see what they're all about. Use the code SAI, S-A-I-E, at checkout for 10% off. So burnout, I, like in what ways have you experienced it? Maybe as a clinical student, have you seen anything crazy on rounds that, you know, makes you feel, I guess, sad or burnt out? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, so two separate occasions. Um, the first was as, a, as I guess, preclinical. So at, during second year studying for boards, um, I absolutely experienced burnout 110%, the most real, like I could not even read my notes. I couldn't do, I was convinced like my brain was broken. Um, yeah. it was a really bizarre feeling and it was pretty close to my test. It was pretty concerning. Um, and, and very thankful. I think people should always take in, take advantage of the counseling and things that are available at medical school that the help is there for a reason. And I kind of talked with them and I, I'm not a huge video game player, but they suggested go do something mindless. So I actually like mm-hmm. fired up the old Xbox and played some video games. And I just built built into the schedule every single day. I forced myself to play video games for an hour. And I would just think about absolutely nothing and just stare mindlessly into the TV. And yeah. uh, it, it actually you know really helped me and kind of got me through that and helped me perform on step. So that was my first like serious run-in where I really felt it. And that would be kind of the the academic or the, the full physical burnout. And then I think the emotional burnout kind of happened, not to pick on OB over and over, but I was on my OB rotation in a undisclosed location. Mm-hmm. And I were delivering babies, delivered a fair amount of babies that day. And every single baby that was delivered was um, born to a mother who's addicted to uh, heroin. And so all the babies come out with this very specific cry um, they're all addicted. They all have to be weaned. Uh, and someone was telling me a story about this mother who just continues to have children because she gets paid by the government for each child that she has. And so that funds oh her drug habit. And so she just has the child and then gives it up. And I I just left the hospital so frustrated that day that like 
what are we even doing? Like, I'm just this like useless piece in the system that's like facilitating this just terrible. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible. That whole situation is nothing about that is right. Um, yeah. and, it, and I'm not even at a point in my life where I'm like ready to have children or anything, but it's still just like, you know, tears up your, your heart when you see something like that. And, uh, so that definitely, that was tough. And I think you have to, you know, again, find the population you want to work with and also, you know, find a way to help everyone the best that you can. Um, some things are out of your hands and you, you have to do the best that you can with what you're given. Um, and I think that that was one of those, uh, you know, harsh realities for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How do you pull yourself out of that? Or how do you keep going after you see something like that? That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And I think, you know, especially emergency medicine, we see a lot of uh, really tough situations. Um, and I think that the things that keep me going are knowing that I always bring 100% of myself to every patient. So, you know, I've worked very hard to get where I am. I'm very proud of the work that I've put in. And I'm proud to bring that knowledge to every patient that I see. And yeah. I think that, um, I think that that, you know, helps me to know that I'm, I'm bringing everything I can to every patient, despite whatever the outcome is. And, um, you know, I think the other thing that's important is to talk with your colleagues, um, talk about those things because you can't hold everything in. Um, I'm, I'm a big holder inner. Um, I, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily like reflexively share things, but, um, you know, sometimes you see something that, uh, you know, it's just tough to process. And it's really helpful to talk to people who work in the same specialty, who understand uh, who are your friends to, to run it by them and say, Hey, you know, I saw this and, and, uh, you know, it was tough and, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a perfect solution. Um, there's obviously more formal, you can always, you know, speak with like counseling and, and things like that. But I, I found for me personally, just kind of, you know, running a tough situation by a colleague or something like that can really help. Yeah. Definitely. And I, I would just add to that. I haven't experienced any kind of emotional, <clears throat> emotional burnout when it comes to seeing patients or seeing something really sad or disheartening on rounds, but I've experienced the kind of physical, emotion, physical burnout when it comes to like testing and all of that. And I right. think mentorship is, you know, the one of the ways that I get out of that, finding someone who's done it before and seeing Absolutely. how they coped with it. So just Absolutely. to add that. That's um, great. Yeah, but just to kind of refocus, um, I want to talk about sub-eyes and electives and kind of the process of applying. Is there any strategies to applying to sub-eyes and kind of what to do once you get there? So wherever yeah. you'd like to start with that. <laughs> so that's, that, that's a big topic there. I know, um, yeah. I, yeah, I think there absolutely is a strategy. I think that it sounds crazy, but at least for emergency medicine, because it happens so early, um, you need to have a pretty good idea of where you want to be for residency when you're applying for those aways. And mm -hmm. it sounds crazy. I don't think a lot of people will tell you that outright, but there's just kind of unwritten rules. Unless you're at, you know, an Ivy League school where everyone wants to get a hold of you, um, there has to be some sort of a filtering process. And so what will happen is, and New York City is very, very guilty of doing this, um, if you are not from New York City itself, you did not go to New York City itself, and you did not rotate in New York City itself, it's very hard to get an interview to do a residency in emergency medicine in New York City. It's not a black and white rule. I did not rotate in New York City physically itself, but I have interviews there, but it's not a lot. It's not as many as other locations. So there mm -hmm. are certain geographic areas where if you know you want to be there, New York City being one of them, but really any big city, you need to go rotate there. 
Um, and that mm-hmm. just shows initiative and interest. And I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just is how it is. But that, that also goes for California big time. Uh, if you think you want to be in California, you absolutely must do a rotation out there unless you yeah. have a, a very strong tie there. Um, and I understand why. I mean, it's hard. There's, you know, thousands of students applying for these spots and there's not a lot of spots to give. And there needs to be some, you know, the program doesn't want you to just rotate there um, just because you got it. They want a student who's interested in them. And, uh, you know, you also don't want to be wasting a rotation at a random program. You want to be rotating somewhere that you potentially could see yourself that next year. So I think it's important to think about that when you're sending these out. Um, You need to apply broad, but you should try and kind of geo-focus those on the places Mm -hmm. that you'd like to be. And let's say, oh, that's a good example. I don't know, maybe... I'm not going to pick on any programs because I don't want to throw myself under the bus. But um, <laughs> if, if you want to be in like, a, let's say, the New Jersey area and you can't get your number one rotation, you're denied um, getting in there. But, you know, somewhere else that you're, you know, you think could be OK, but probably isn't your number one offers you a rotation. I would urge students to take that rotation because, um, you know, it shows initiative that you're, you're in the state, you're in the area, you want to be in that location. And uh, you yeah. may still get an interview at the place that you didn't get a rotation. So, you know, try and focus in on where you think you might want to be. Is there a consensus on how many you should do? Because I know that it differs for different specialties. There, there's some yeah. where people are like, do three. And, you know, you really have to fit those in if you want to increase your chances. So, yeah. So it's kind of funny as medical school goes on, just like residency, you get very specialized in what you know. So I really only know about emergency medicine at this point in terms of application and the specifics of what you actually need to do. Um, I can tell you for emergency medicine, you definitely need at least two slows and you can only get slows from doing a sub I. Uh, if you have a home program, that may mean you only need to do one away, although most students will do two aways, again, to increase their chances at some of these other programs and to be seen because nothing speaks better to you as a student than watching you actually work in the department. You know, if you're a very bright person on paper and you get there and you're fantastic with patients, that's a slam dunk. They're going to want you, um, especially mm-hmm. if you jive well with the staff. But I mean, you could be a genius on paper and, you know, totally dysfunctional in person, unable to connect with patients, don't do well with the staff. And they wouldn't know that if you don't rotate and, and vice versa, it's a fit for you. I mean, you want to see, you know, do you like the county vibe? Do you like the academic vibe? Do you like the community vibe? What are you looking for in a program? And the away rotations really help you with that. So I'm a big advocate of doing two rotations away. Um, I think it just gives you more exposure. I think three is a lot. Some students do three. I think if you have holes in your application, three is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. There's nothing wrong with it, but I can tell you to be on for three months in a row is very difficult. Definitely. Right. I'm glad we talked about that. I want to ask just for my own fun, what are the craziest things that you've gotten to do in the ER? Are there any procedures you get to do as a med student that you're like, whoa, that was cool? (laughs) Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Like I said, I've, I've had some really great rotations with the teaching fellowship. My ultrasound knowledge, I would say, is is probably on the uh, upper end of the spectrum. I'm very comfortable with that. And so I get to do a lot of really cool things with ultrasound. And as a result of being good with ultrasound, that leads to getting a lot of procedures, um, whether that's an ultrasound guided IV, which is actually a very challenging procedure, you know, or um, a central line, which is kind of like the gold standard of, I can't believe you do that as a med student. Um, yeah. And the, uh, the running joke, I don't think, 
I don't think I have enough central lines to graduate, but my, my anesthesia <laughs> rotations have been incredible. And uh, the, the running joke with the anesthesiologist is that um, I could have graduated, you know, I had enough tubes to graduate in EM residency actually as a third year. <laughs> um, so, you know, finding those That's really awesome. strong, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, and finding strong off-service rotations will get you those skills you need to perform you know, if you want to be in the ER to perform there, to perform wherever. I mean, you know, I, I had a great ENT rotation. As a result, I'm, I got to do some scopes and I'm very comfortable using a scope. So, um, you know, when we've done labs with fiber optic intubation or bronchoscope or uh, even a TEE, which is kind of combining scoping with ultrasound, mm. um, you know, those are motions that I'm very comfortable with because of the work that I put in with, with the uh, otolaryngologist. So, uh, you know, I think it's about kind of taking skills from everywhere you go um, and, and practicing those. But yeah, I would say, you know, coolest procedures in the ER are definitely for me intubations and central lines. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so great yeah. to hear that. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, if you haven't been able to tell already, I'm really interested in EM as well. Good, um, good. So, so I, I, say, I, I hope like I'm, hope I'm not putting things. you to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so as we kind of near the end of this episode, I want to talk about the social media platforms, because that's a huge part of your life. And Absolutely. it's kind of becoming a huge part of my life too, with the podcast and everything. So I want to ask, what is the hardest part about having so many social media platforms? Mm. So I think each platform is unique. And I think one of the things that a lot of people run into is trying to apply the same strategy across multiple platforms. Um, mm -hmm. What I do on Instagram is similar to but different than what I would do on a blog, which is similar to but very different than what I would do on a YouTube. And mm -hmm. those areas don't necessarily overlap. So what I generally try and do is, is create content as an idea that can be applied to all three of those in their specific ways. And I think it's, it's very time consuming. Uh, it sounds silly, but I live alone. I have no one to take pictures, so I have to set up a tripod and, and self-time oh the gosh. camera and get the right yeah. get the right shot. And it's it's a lot of effort. And um, you know, with the frequency that we're expected to post on social media to stay relevant, um, you run out of backgrounds really quickly as a med student. So yeah, you know, there's there's kind of like weird hidden things that that make it challenging. Um, and YouTube, I won't even people message me and they're like, oh, should I I want to start a YouTube channel? And I'm like, honestly, I I don't want to put water on your dreams here, but like, just don't, it's so, so much work. Much work. Um, yeah. And the, the level of content to even, to even scrape the bottom of the barrel on YouTube, um, you need to be using like a $600 camera just for starters. Um, yeah. because that's, that's the level that the content is set at and you need an external microphone I mean, you need someone who's great at editing. Those, those are all really key. And so, you know, I, like I said, I think every platform kind of has its own little, you know, niches. Yeah. Um, how has being on Instagram particularly helped you help people? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that to me, it's kind of like having an auditorium full of almost 30,000 people. And I, I'm a big fan of public speaking. I love to speak to a large audience because I think it lets you develop a connection with a lot of people in a short amount of time and, and share really great information. And I think Instagram does that too. You know, not every post is a, a blockbuster hit. Not every post lands on the <laughs> explore page, but every post connects with at least one follower on a personal level every time I post it. And so yeah. that's kind of, uh, I, I take pride in that and, and the messages that I'll get from followers and, you know, that they either appreciate a post or that it was very helpful, that they're motivated from it. Um, I love doing the question and answers on there. 
mm-hmm. like doing the Instagram lives and, um, you know, trying to make as much of a connection with as many people as I can, because I think, you know, one of the things that I really wished for all through med school and before was, was really good mentorship. And it's not that it's not out there. It just wasn't accessible to me. And, uh, you know, Instagram is free and accessible to everyone all around the world. And I think that that's, uh, you know, a really, um, enticing part about that platform. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm figuring that out too. I think it's really easy for someone just to send you a quick DM and, you know, ask whatever the heck they want and they could be on the opposite side of the world. So I love that opportunity as well. Um, has your school in particular found any of your social media and have they had anything to say about that? So that's the reason that uh, I don't share that in, right. in any of the interviews that I do or any of my uh, handles. You'll notice it's always blurred out um, yeah. if you've ever taken a look on, on a white coat or anything like that. I never wanted to cross that bridge. Uh, my school, I don't know if I can say this without giving myself away. We'll say it. My school <laughs> has an odd tendency to produce very famous social media people, famous, if you will, in air quotes. So they generally will stay out of it as long as you're not blatantly causing a problem. Um, but I never wanted to cross that threshold and have any kind of discussion with them about it. And so to kind of alleviate any of that, I just don't talk about it. I think, you know, again, there's another young Instagrammer that is starting, starting out and doing a great job. And again, from, from where I go to med school. And so it seems to be this recurring theme. I don't know what it is there, but, um, (laughs) so yeah. I don't know if that answers it, but I just generally don't, don't tell them. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And I know a lot of people are changing their names and stuff on Facebook when it comes to residency or kind of trying to like hide their social media. Is that something that you're going to do or no? No, no. Yeah. I don't, I don't really believe in that. I mean, I think, um, and actually when I launch this project on 11, 11, um, mm-hmm. I'll be switching to my full name on, on Instagram. And I, there's nothing to hide. I, I'm very proud of what I do on Instagram. I'm proud of what yeah. I do and what we will continue to be doing here in the future on, on the other platforms. And, um, you know, that's something that I've worked very hard on and I, I'm, I'm proud for programs to see that and to ask me questions about that. I'm happy to field that. And I think what we're Definitely. doing is really important and, uh, and, and really helpful for, medical students, residents, healthcare providers, you know, across all the spectrums. So to me, changing a name of a Facebook or something like that just says, I have stuff on here that I don't want you to see. Um, And there's differing opinions. I've made a post about this. There's, there's been some chatting on Instagram about this, but um, I think the consensus is, is kind of moving away from hiding your socials. And I think it's okay now to, you know, have a social media presence that, especially if it's a professional one, I think that can be a positive thing. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I think it, it's a huge asset it, going into an interview or anything. It gives you something you can talk about that's a little bit different from everyone else as well. Absolutely. So I agree with that. So do you intend on keeping all of your social media platforms, Instagram, all of that as a practicing physician? So yes, um, yeah. I would love to, to keep this going. I would love to keep the mentorship going. Um, and I'm guessing this podcast will go live probably after 11.11. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it will. So then at this point, I can actually say, 
So Yay. what we're, yeah, we're launching the MedLife, which um, I know no one can see my shirt, but that's what I have <laughs> on. So we basically expanded and we brought on a nurse, we brought on a PA, we brought on a PT, we brought on a dentist, and that way we could cover all of healthcare and bring everyone together, both educational and entertaining content. And so we're doing that through YouTube. We're doing that through the blog over on seethemedlife.com. And then of course, we each kept our respective Instagrams because that's kind of how we got started and, and found each other. And so we wanted to keep some identity of the originalness. Um, but uh, I would love to keep that going. And, and that's our plan is to, to continue that, to continue to expand. We have um, having guest writers on the blog at all, all, all the time. We'd, we'd be happy to have you on if you're interested. Awesome. And definitely. Um, yeah. And uh, we actually have some stuff in the works for guest vlogs as well. So that will be uh, coming in the future, but uh, you know, at this time, we're just trying to get the launch and get everything off the ground and hopefully people will really enjoy it. Um, like I said, I have the shirt, we have a line of merch and uh, some cool stuff to go along with it. So hopefully uh, people really have fun with it. Love it. Yeah, that's such a great concept. I think that that is definitely very needed in this space right now to merge all of the healthcare fields. So I love that exactly. idea. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, I'm, I'll leave everything in the show notes to go check that out because I'm sure people are curious about it. Awesome. So. Um, so I always like to ask my guests this as kind of like a wrap up question, but what advice do you have to pre-meds and medical students that are listening to this right now? So I'm going to default to our actual slogan at the MedLife and that's hustle, grind and stay humble. Um, I think those things are, are incredibly important. Um, you know, your hustle and your grind are the day to day work that you put in and I always used to say I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I like to think I'm one of the hardest working. And I think one of the hardest working is that stay humble component because, um, you know, you don't have to be the number one at everything. You can be a team player. You can be a hard worker with other hard workers. Um, but, you know, I think just keeping in the back of your mind that you're always going to put in the extra mile. You're always going to go that distance to, to do the best you can for yourself and for your patients that that's important. And, you know, ultimately on, you know, not forgetting where you came from and, and not forgetting the people that helped get you there and make you successful. And, and that's another huge reason why I like to do the mentorship, um, you know, and, and try and give back. So I, that's what I would leave it with hustle, grind and stay humble. I love it. I love the slogan. That's a, that's a great one. Thank you. Um, well, thank you so much to Adam for joining me on today's episode. My pleasure. Um, and I'll leave all of his information in the show notes as well so you guys can check out everything he's up to. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Brown Girl White Coat. And make sure you do all the things, you know, rate, review, comment, send me DMs on my Instagram at Cybear and follow us at Brown Girl White Coat Pod for more. And come back in two weeks or so for another new exciting episode. Thank you so much to Pixerize for sponsoring this week. And I, I'm just so excited to be working with them, honestly. And yeah, I hope you guys have a great day. And thanks for making this podcast a part of your day, a part of your week, wherever you are.